You should be in the open square outside Deptford Railway Station facing the High Street with the blue railway bridge to your left. Do you see the brown information board with the map on that says Deptford Market Yard? Go and look at that map. It shows the centre of Deptford with the High Street and the train station. Today, Deptford is part of the massive conurbation that is London. But in Elizabethan times, this map would have looked very different. Take a look at your phone now. This is what Deptford would have looked like in the late 16th century. Deptford was a completely separate town. The high street was surrounded by fields. In fact, where you're standing now would have been populated by cows and crops. But Deptford was changing fast in the 16th century. And as we shall hear, those changes play a big part in our story. For now, step just to the side of the map and watch the world go by on Deptford High Street while I tell you what this is all about. Over 400 years ago, right here in Deptford, a dapper 29-year-old playwright named Christopher Marlowe came to meet three colleagues at a guest house. Hours later, he was brutally murdered. And murder cases don't get any more sensational than this. Because Marlowe wasn't just any old playwright. He was one of the greatest poets in English history, as well as being an outspoken atheist. Oh, and he was also a spy. My name's Ros Barber. I wrote a novel about Christopher Marlowe's supposed killing and in the process became kind of obsessed with him. The book took me four years to write and nearly ten years later, I'm still digging into the case. Though his life is fascinating, his plays, like his masterpiece Dr Faustus, are the main reason most people have heard of him. But Marlowe was also the single biggest influence on William Shakespeare. They were contemporaries and there's evidence to suggest that they actually worked on each other's plays. But more on that later. There are three plausible explanations for Marlowe's apparent murder. Some say he died in a drunken brawl. Others say the murder was an assassination ordered by Queen Elizabeth I. And some, like me, say there was no murder at all. Marlowe's death was faked. Your job today is to decide which of these three theories is the real answer to the murder mystery. We'll hear more about Marlowe and his writings later, but for now, we have a murder to solve and a unique area of London to explore. Deptford is a tucked-away, long-ignored corner of the capital, a stray mongrel of a place, and though it can look pretty dog-eared, in terms of character, it puts its more illustrious neighbours to shame bit like Marlowe himself, actually. Let's head over to the scene of the crime and learn a bit more about Deptford as we go. We're going to turn left onto the high street, heading past the phone box under the railway bridge, keeping on the left-hand side of the road. Nowadays, Deptford High Street is a motley collection of pound shops, bookies, cheap ethnic eateries and convenience stores. People from richer areas of London sneer, calling it Dirty Deptford. It's always been a working-class area, going back to the beginning. Tudor Deptford was about as far away from our common perceptions of Elizabethan times as it's possible to imagine. There were no charismatic courtiers with collar ruffs, prettily dressed princesses or charming castles here. Instead, hastily built wooden shacks would have lined this narrow high street. There was no plumbing, so there would have been an open sewer running down the middle of the road. Drunken sailors on shore leave would be meandering around and there'd be brothels, drinking and gambling dens everywhere. Because in Marlowe's day, the Royal Naval Dockyard was based here, where the mighty English Navy was built. Carry on walking straight. So now we have an idea of the scene of the crime. Let's sink our teeth into our first theory, the drunken brawl. To understand it, you need to know a little more about our protagonist, the 29-year-old man with the dagger at his side, who would have been walking along Deptford High Street on the morning of the 30th of May, 1593. There should be a zebra crossing on your right. Stop when you reach it and turn to face the road. 
Do you see the graceful spire and columns of St Paul's Church over the road? We're going to cross the road and walk inside the high grey gates of that churchyard. I'll meet you at the gates. Stop just inside the high grey gates of the churchyard and find a spot that's out of the way of pedestrians. Look up at the church. St Paul's was built in 1730 and is one of the best examples of Baroque architecture in England. Unfortunately, St Paul's isn't usually open to the public. People rarely visit it, but it's definitely worth a closer look, so let's wander through the graveyard, down the path to the church steps. St Paul's was built 140 years after Marlowe's death, but it's an Anglican church, and the Church of England plays a massive role in Marlowe's story. You see, he was born in 1564, the same year as Shakespeare. They were from the same social class too, sons of craftsmen. Marlowe was highly precocious, and despite his lowly background, he won a scholarship to Cambridge University. At Cambridge, he was studying to be a parish priest. Now, Marlowe wasn't very interested in a life as a humble man of the cloth doing baptisms and funerals in a church like this. He was much more ambitious. He dreamt of being a great poet. Stop when you reach the bottom of the church steps. If you're lucky and the entrance to St Paul's is open, go inside. Pause me now and restart me when you're all done and back outside. If the church isn't open, there's a photo of the interior on your phone now. Do you see the giant Corinthian columns either side of the altar? They're almost theatrical in effect. Obviously, if you look at the outside of the building, the columns play a major part in the design here too. St Paul's mirrors the finest examples of the Italian Baroque, perhaps more than any other church in London. The poet John Betjeman described it as a pearl at the heart of Deptford. And it was built to provide an adequate place of worship for the area's booming population. It still operates as a functioning church today, serving one of the most economically deprived parishes in the country. We're not staying here long. I just couldn't take you to Deptford without getting a closer look at St Paul's. Turn so the church is behind you. We're going to walk back up the path we came down, back towards the high street. So, we left Marlowe as a precocious young man who dreamt of being a great poet. So in his final year of university, he penned a play called Tamburlaine, about a lowly peasant who becomes an emperor. The plot is drenched in blood, politics, sex and treachery. Marlowe was also one of the pioneers of blank verse, strongly rhythmical lines that don't rhyme. A revolutionary notion at a time when most plays were written in rhyming couplets. When Tamburlaine was first performed in 1587, it was wildly popular with the audiences of the day. Tamburlaine, along with Marlowe's other six plays, wasn't just a hit with the theatre-going public. It also fundamentally influenced the other great writers of the late 16th century. So much for being a priest. Walk straight out of the churchyard gates. We're going to cross back over the zebra crossing and turn right up Deptford High Street. The same way we were headed before. Turn right and carry on walking up Deptford High Street. There are only two boozers on this road now, but back in the day when alcohol was more affordable, there'd have been scores of pubs and guest houses here. Cross over this quiet little side street walk forward about 10 paces, and then turn to face Deptford High Street. Stop here. You should be facing the road. On the other side, there should be a cream-coloured building with red brick effect colouring just above the second-storey windows. Got it? Last time I was here, it was a nail supply shop, but it might be something different now. Find a place that's out of the way of foot traffic and keep looking at it. Do you see, just below the shop sign, on either side of the building, there are two green and brown coloured figureheads. They're sea gods. 
They're decorations for this building in a past life, when it used to be a pub called The Pilot. And so to the murder. It's the morning of the 30th of May, 1593, and Christopher Marlowe has just walked in there. Not this building as it stands today. The Tudors built mainly in wood, and most of their buildings have long since rotted away. But we do know Marlowe entered a guest house owned by a woman named Eleanor Bull, probably right here on this high street. Much like the pilot, Eleanor Bull's was a place for food, drink and quiet conversations away from prying eyes. Imagine three gentlemen on the sidewalk in front of you, swaggering into the guest house to meet Marlowe. I should introduce them because they're key players in our story. In front is Nicholas Skears, con man and low-level informant for the Elizabethan Secret Service. The cunning-looking one at the very back is Robert Poley, perhaps the most important double agent in the Elizabethan spy network. In between them is a bulky, tough-looking cove called Ingram Freiser. He's a con man and loan shark too. I'll tell you more about the Elizabethan Secret Service later on. All you need to know for now is that there was one, and these three guys, along with Marlowe, were in it. When the road's clear, cross over and get a closer look at the sea god figureheads. I'll meet you there. Made it? Good. I always imagine Ingram Freiser, the burly loan shark, Looks a bit like the bearded one on the right. Which brings me neatly to the murder. Keep looking at Fryzer's stony expression. After eating, chatting and presumably drinking at the guesthouse, Marlowe got into an altercation over the bill with Fryzer. Words were exchanged and Marlowe bashed Fryzer on the head with the hilt of his dagger. Fryzer grappled the dagger out of Marlowe's hands and, in self-defence, stabbed him straight through the eye. Marlowe died on the spot. This is the version of events according to Ingram Fryzer and his two friends. The official inquiry took note of the testimony of these gentlemen and found Fryzer to be not guilty of murder. He was set free a month later and Marlowe was buried in St Nicholas Churchyard up the road, where we're heading now. If you're facing the old pub, turn left and start walking up the high street, heading in the same direction you were before. Now, like any good detective, you need to think for yourself and figure out whether this official version of events adds up. So, where do we start? Well, we've heard a bit about Kit Marlowe's career. Kit was Marlowe's nickname, by the way. But what was he like as a man? As it happens, he had a lengthy criminal record. And he was often short of cash, which actually helps to back up the drunken brawl theory. Take the next right, down a cobbled lane called Albury Street. When you've turned right, carry on walking on the right-hand side. We're heading all the way to the end of this street. Between writing Tamburlaine in 1587 and his death in 1593, Marlowe was sued on three separate occasions, once for stealing a horse, once for defaulting on a loan, and once for property damage after a fight. He was also arrested for counterfeiting coin of the realm. Last but not least, he was jailed briefly for manslaughter for helping his friend kill a man. By the way, as we walk, keep your eyes on the houses to the left. These are beautiful 18th century terraces built for the likes of sea captains and wealthy clerks. They were made around the same time as St Paul's, the church we just visited. You'll have another view of St Paul's on your right very soon, but carry on walking straight. Around half of the Marlowologists who endlessly pore over the details of the case believe the brawl theory to be true. The reasoning goes, if the only witnesses say it was a brawl, if a jury at the time agreed with those witnesses and found Ingram Fryzer not guilty, if Marlowe had a history of violence, then who are we to question it 400 years after the fact? Maybe Marlowe just got drunk, demanded Fryzer pay the bill, 
Fraser refused, and the deadly fight broke out. Well, as we're about to hear, things aren't quite as straightforward as that. In fact, some very influential scholars believe that the official version of events was a cover-up for something far more sinister, and that actually Marlowe was assassinated by Ingram Fraser on the orders of Queen Elizabeth I. Stop here for a second at the corner. Do you see those two big trees growing out of the sidewalk at the end of the street? They should be in front of you, just to your right. Well, in between those trees is a passageway with a square brick entrance. Let's walk down that passageway to the busy main road up ahead. To properly understand the assassination theory, you need to understand a little more about the time and place in which all this happened. Take a look at the busy road ahead of you. Now it's the evocatively named A200, but in Marlowe's day, it was called Watling Street. It connected the south of the country to the capital and was full of farmers and traders taking food and goods to London's busy markets. This road, along with the river, meant that Deptford was extremely well connected to the rest of the country and the world. Stop here. You should be standing on the corner of two very busy highways. This is a complicated crossing, so pay attention. Don't be a Marlovian rebel and get yourself killed. With your back to the passageway you've just come through, turn your head to the left. Do you see that row of white houses all the way over the road? We're heading over there. Which means we need to cross two roads with two sets of lights each. There should be a crossing with traffic lights just to your right. Press the button and wait for the green man. I'll meet you on the other side. OK, you've navigated one of these beasts. You've got one more road and two more crossings to traverse. Turn so you're facing the side of the road and the multi-storey building with the orange frontage. We're crossing over to that. Again, press the appropriate buttons and wait for the little green men. I'll meet you on the other side. Well done. Let's get off this horrible main road now. Turn left. You're going to skirt round the orange building and take the first right. We're turning right here, off the main road. Turn up this side street and keep on the right-hand side of the road with the white houses over to your left. OK, back to Elizabethan Deptford. One mile up the road we've just turned off was Greenwich Palace, one of Queen Elizabeth's favourite residences. So, Deptford was chaotic, it had great transport links and it was next to the seat of power. In short, it was the perfect place to receive orders from on high, execute them in secret and then leave the scene of the crime. Orders perhaps like the murder of a rebellious playwright. But why might someone want to murder Christopher Marlowe in the first place? Well, the best way to answer that is by going to his final resting place. In a second, St Nicholas Church will come into view up ahead of you. You can't miss it. It's a big, grey stone tower. We're going to cross over to the entranceway of the church now and get a closer look at those creepy skull headstones. I'll meet you underneath them. Stop here, on the sidewalk outside the entrance of St Nicholas Churchyard. The two gateposts with the stone skulls should be above you. Legend has it that these skulls inspired some 17th century pirate to create the skull and crossbones flag. If you'd like, go ahead and use Detour's camera feature to take a selfie with the skulls in the background and post it to your social media. I'll wait for you. Now, let's step inside the churchyard. We're going to sit down on that bench on your left, just up ahead, near the church door. You're not going to understand why Marlowe might have been assassinated until I give you a little religious education. Sounds a bit boring, doesn't it? Well, not in Elizabethan times. Are you sitting on the bench near the church door? Great. If you turn your head to the left, you will see St Nicholas Church Tower. It was built around 1300 AD, at a time when England was solidly Catholic. D. 
200 years later, in 1532, Henry VIII forced England out of the Catholic Church so he could divorce his first wife. In the process, he changed the church from Catholic to Protestant. This was a major event in the life of every English subject. Families had prayed at churches like St Nicholas for generations, listening to Catholic services. Many were devastated, and they swore never to accept the new Protestant Church of England, nor a monarch who supported it. Look around at the graves. Chances are that a fair few of the men and women buried here harboured secret Catholic sympathies. Which is a reminder that when Queen Elizabeth inherited the throne and the Church of England, she also inherited a problem. There were some English Catholics who wanted to topple her and replace her with a monarch of the old religion. But what's this got to do with Marlow? Well, Elizabeth's spy network, remember that? The one that all of the men in the guesthouse that day were a part of? Well, the spy network existed to protect Elizabeth and the Protestant Church of England from these Catholic plotters and from anyone else who didn't publicly subscribe to Protestant orthodoxy. After Elizabeth's spies caught plotters and dissidents, they were dealt with harshly. Heretics were burnt to death, while atheists and troublesome Catholics were hanged, drawn and quartered. Because Elizabeth was the head of the Church of England, and if you spoke or acted against the Church, you spoke against the Queen. It was treason. Now, the trouble for Christopher Marlowe was that he didn't really enjoy rules. In both his work and his life, he tested the boundaries of what was permissible, and many believe he was murdered because of his disdain for the religious orthodoxy of the day. OK, let's stand up. We're going to walk up the churchyard path now, keeping the church on our left. Marlowe's lead characters were often enemies of Christianity, like the pagan Tamburlaine and the Jew Barabbas in The Jew of Malta. Unlike in other Elizabethan writers' works, in Marlowe's plays, the non-Christians often triumphed. Tamburlaine conquered the whole of Africa and huge swathes of Asia and the Middle East. In The Jew of Malta, Marlowe gave Machiavelli the iconic line, I count religion but a childish toy, and hold there is no sin but ignorance. When you get to the back entrance of the churchyard, stop. There's a little hidden path to your left, just inside the churchyard wall. We're going to walk down the little path, keeping the wall on our right. Anyway, many believed that Marlowe was expressing his own atheist beliefs through his characters, which, given the punishment for atheism was execution, was extremely dangerous for him. When you see a white plaque on your right with Christopher Marlowe's name on it, stop. I'll give you some time to read it. As you can see, the plaque commemorates Marlowe's murder on the 30th of May, 1593. It's inscribed with a line from his masterpiece, Dr Faustus. Cut is the branch that might have grown full straight. Dr Faustus is about a scholar who sells his soul to the devil in exchange for magical powers and dies horribly as a result. Elizabethan audiences were genuinely scared by this ungodly subject matter. And during one performance, spectators actually fled the theatre in terror after supposedly seeing a real devil appear on stage. People often associate Marlowe with Faustus, hence the quotation here. The idea is that Marlowe, like Faustus, was killed before he had a chance to fully grow. It's one of English literature's great what-ifs. Had Marlowe survived, had the branch been allowed to grow full straight, would he now be honoured as the English language's greatest writer instead of Shakespeare? It's true that Shakespeare's early work is surprisingly similar to Marlowe's. In fact, in 2016, Oxford University Press credited Marlowe as co-author on William Shakespeare's first three plays, the Henry VI trilogy. We'll come back to the Shakespeare-Marlowe connection later. For now, turn so your back is to the plaque and take a look at the patch of grass in front of you. You might be wondering why Marlowe doesn't have a grave. Well, at the time he was killed, 
The plague was raging through London and the outlying regions. There were so many deaths in places like Deptford that the easiest way to dispose of bodies was by digging a big pit and chucking them all in. Which means that underneath your feet are hundreds of skeletons, all snugly squashed together. And if Kit was indeed murdered, one of them is his. This does of course mean that even if you fancied trying to dig up his body to do a belated crime investigation, you'd have no idea which one was his, which is kind of convenient. We're going to leave now, so take a second to pay your respects to one of England's greatest ever writers. Now follow the path round the corner, keeping the churchyard wall directly on your right-hand side. We're going to circle all the way round the church. Please remember to stay on the path and off the grass. This is an old church, and they don't have a lot of money for maintenance. When the path veers to the left, follow it round, keeping the church on your left-hand side. As we circle the church, I'll tell you a bit about it. Do you see how the tower is stone, while the main body of the church is brick? That's because of a fire in the 17th century. The tower stood strong, but the old hall was gutted, so they rebuilt it in a different style. And since then, gales and German bombs have done even more damage, so it's a bit of a mishmash, to be honest. Once you've passed the base of the tower, follow the path round, keeping the church directly on your left. At the church door, there might be a rubbish bin. Just step round it. When you get back to the main path, turn right towards the entrance with the stone skulls. When you're past the main entrance with the skulls, take a right and start walking up the street, making sure the outside of the churchyard wall is directly on your right-hand side. We're walking up this wide road for a while. We're on our way to a stunning view of the mighty River Thames. So, now you understand a bit more about the man and his times, you might be able to hazard a guess as to why Elizabeth might want Marlowe dead. The Queen didn't really care what people believed behind closed doors, but if they went public with beliefs that weren't strictly Protestant, then she could be merciless. Carry on straight along this road. Do you see St Nicholas House to your right? Well, as well as being Santa Claus, St Nicholas is also the patron saint of sailors, prostitutes and pawnbrokers, which is pretty fitting for Deptford. As I mentioned, Elizabeth's position was precarious because of the threat from Catholics and other dissidents, and she was obsessed with protecting herself against subversive views that might undermine her church's legitimacy. So the unorthodox themes and characters in Marlowe's wildly popular plays probably didn't go down too well with her. On top of which, according to his enemies, Marlowe made numerous subversive statements in public, such as Christ was a bastard and his mother dishonest. And St. John the Evangelist was bedfellow to Christ. He used him as the sinners of Sodom. And my personal favourite. All they that love not tobacco and boys are fools. Keep walking straight along this road. Marlowe's blasphemies were overheard and copied down by Elizabeth's spies who were watching people in notable positions all over England. And the note was delivered to the Queen. Imagine her reaction after reading it. In fact, we know what her reaction was because it's in the records. When asked what she would like to do about Marlowe and his blasphemies, Elizabeth was heard to say, prosecute it to the full. In Elizabethan England, that type of order didn't usually mean, let's put him on the naughty step. Ingram Fraser, Nicholas Skears and Robert Poley all worked for the Secret Service, an organisation dedicated to weeding out Catholics and atheists from public life. All three of those men were professional liars and they would have been experienced in skullduggery, like covering up murders. Ingram Fraser himself invited Marlowe to Deptford. Marlowe actually lived in central London. He would have had to come here specially for this meeting. Still think it was a drunken brawl? Stop here and turn to face the road. Across the street there should be a wide five-storey block of flats. That's Hugh's house. 
On the ground floor, you should be able to see a short tunnel-like passageway that goes under the building. I want you to go through that passageway. Start walking. On the other side of the passageway, you can see a small park and a path that branches left and right. We're going to take the right-hand branch. Another reason people think Marlowe was assassinated is the location Ingram Fraser chose for the meeting place, Deptford. Remember to keep right here and head towards the road. Elizabethan Deptford would have been full of passageways this narrow, with the brown mulch of organic filth under your feet, taverns, brothels and dwellings looming over you, the alley filled with newcomers, people from all over England and Europe, here to make a quick buck. In short, Deptford was just the kind of chaotic place you would choose if you wanted to cover up a murder. Make sure to keep right and head towards the road. When you reach the end of the path, cross straight over the road to the tall, yellow brick wall. Watch out for cars when you cross. When you've reached the other side, turn left, so the high wall is directly on your right-hand side. Then start walking on the sidewalk. There's a problem with the assassination theory, though, and that's motive. If you were Elizabeth, why wouldn't you just let justice take its course? There was certainly enough evidence of Marlowe's atheism. If she really wanted to send out a message to non-believers, surely she would have had him arrested, tortured, and then executed. When you reach the corner, follow the pavement round to the right, skirting the edge of the modern glass building with its white columns. Once you've turned the corner, you'll see a large white-fronted Victorian warehouse in front of you. Stop wherever you can, to get a good view of that building. Stop here. You should be looking at the bright white Victorian-era frontage of Payne's Paper Wharf. This wharf wouldn't have been here in Marlowe's day, but there would have been wooden buildings here serving the exact same function, warehouses for goods coming in and out of the country, with narrow alleyways alongside them running down to the river. Turn so the Paper Wharf is on your left, and the modern glass building with white columns is on your right. Do you see the steps leading to a platform at the end of the street? We're aiming for them. Let's go. There is a school of thought that says, well, perhaps Elizabeth didn't want to murder Marlowe publicly. Then the way he was killed makes perfect sense. Actually, it doesn't. If you were planning to kill someone secretly, why would your plot involve a meeting in a guesthouse with three other people and an elaborate cover-up afterwards involving a formal inquest? Why not just knife him down a dark alleyway like this and chuck his body in the River Thames? No one's asking any questions because there's no body and no witnesses. And when the body does eventually wash up, what's one more unidentified corpse in plague-ridden London? Given the manner in which Marlowe supposedly died, it's really hard to think of a strong reason for Elizabeth ordering the hit. When you reach the steps, walk up them and meet me at the black railings overlooking the river. The River Thames. The reason for London's existence. The bringer of trade, ideas and secrets to and from every corner of the world. It would have looked very different in Marlowe's day. Across from here, you can see the giant skyscrapers of Canary Wharf, one of London's financial districts. Even to this day, that peninsula is called the Isle of Dogs because it was where Elizabeth I kept her hunting hounds. Imagine all those skyscrapers gone. Back then, it was a marshland with a few shacks, a refuge for debtors and petty criminals. In fact, in 1593, apart from Deptford itself, the only significant buildings visible from here were in Greenwich, which you can still see if you look to your right, downriver. Do you see the grand grey domes and white colonnades of the 17th century masterpiece, the Greenwich Hospital for Seamen? In Marlowe's day, Elizabeth's palace was right there on that spot. Look at your phone now to see a picture of the old palace. All kinds of stuff went down in there.
In fact, it's where Elizabeth signed the death warrant of her cousin Mary, Queen of Scots. A Catholic claimant to the throne, she'd plotted to overthrow Elizabeth. Mary's plot was foiled by none other than Elizabethan secret agent, Robert Poley. The very same Robert Poley that was in Eleanor Bull's guest house with Christopher Marlowe on the 30th of May. Small world, eh? But how were men like Marlowe and Poley chosen to be spies? Well, take a look at the boats travelling along the Thames. Young men like Marlowe were shipped out along this very river to unmask Catholic plots on the continent. Marlowe was picked out to be a spy whilst he was still a student. Intelligent young men craving adventure make for good operatives, as do playwrights and poets. Remember Faustus, described as a branch that didn't grow full straight? Verbal trickery like that is important when reading and writing coded messages aimed at breaking state secrets. What's more, Marlowe knew several languages, Latin, French and Italian, and probably more. He would have been a very useful asset to Elizabeth's first minister, William Cecil, spymaster and most powerful man in the country. We're going to leave now. Turn so your back is to the river and walk down the steps. When you reach the bottom of the steps, take a sharp right and head back to the river. There's a small path along the riverside that we're going to take. When you get to the path, turn left, keeping the river on your right and walk straight. This is the riverside section of the wharf, where boats would have unloaded raw materials and collected goods. Do you see those dilapidated piers up ahead of you on the river's edge? They're the remnants of the Royal Naval Dockyard. It's where the English Navy was built to fight off invasions like the Spanish Armada. Deptford's dockyard was crucial to England's survival as a Protestant nation, kind of like William Cecil's spy network. Do you see the information board in front of you in the corner of the wharf? Go and stand to the right of it. Stand in the far corner of the wharf with the river directly to your right. Central London is upriver, straight ahead of you. And it's from that direction that Marlowe would have arrived by ferry on the day of his supposed death. Lean over the low concrete wall and look to your left at the river steps below. He would have walked up there. Let's take a second to imagine what he would have seen here when he arrived. The shipbuilders and labourers of the dockyard would be hard at work, sawing, lifting and hammering. And newly built ships would be sailing out onto the busy River Thames and into Elizabeth's navy. Groups of rowdy sailors would be joking around, killing time, playing dice and drinking. People actually still find Elizabethan artefacts on the foreshore down there. Things like nails and tobacco pipes. All this noise, all this chaos, all these spies, all these ships. It's the perfect place to hide a conspiracy, all right. Just maybe not an assassination conspiracy. To me, it looks more like the exact right place from which to fake a murder and leave the country. Which brings me to our third theory, and the one I believe is the most compelling. Escape. What if... Instead of being Marlowe's enemies, Poli, Skiers and Freiser were actually Marlowe's friends. They weren't there to kill him. They were there to save their fellow spy from the allegations of atheism that were hounding him. I've spent a lot of time and energy researching this theory and feel it's something we should consider. So let me try to convince you as we head towards our final stop, a suitable resting place for weary travellers in Elizabethan England. The pub. Facing the paper wharf and with your back to the river, you're going to walk up the little steps to the right and then down the other side, into the alleyway. When you get into the alleyway, make sure you admire the view. Not many people come this way because it's quite well hidden. The alley's called Watergate and we're going to walk down it now, away from the river, with Kit, on the morning of his supposed murder. I think we can safely say he would have been worried. 
He'd been arrested 10 days previously, on the 20th of May, suspected of atheism and blasphemy. Generally, if you were accused of atheism, you would be imprisoned, tortured and executed. The trial would be a formality. So Marlowe had good reason to be concerned. But you may have noticed there's something strange about all this. Why wasn't Marlowe in prison being tortured? Why was he out and about in Deptford meeting his Secret Service pals just 10 days after being arrested? Well, Elizabeth's ministers, led by her powerful spymaster, William Cecil, had decided to release Marlowe on bail, which, as you can imagine, was very strange given the charges against him. As you exit the alleyway, keep on walking down the right-hand side of Watergate, keeping the high dockyard wall directly on your right-hand side. We're walking down this street for a while. By the way, do you know why the dockyard walls are that high? It's to keep the thieves out. Dockyards have expensive goods in them that are well worth nicking. So, Kit's free as a bird, despite having made the type of comments that would have earned anyone else a one-way ticket to Torture Town. And it just so happens that this wasn't the first time Marlowe had received official protection. When Marlowe was at Cambridge, the university authorities were going to fail him because he hadn't attended classes for months. At this point, the Privy Council, the government of the day, which was headed by William Cecil, stepped in and ordered the university to pass Marlowe because he had been engaged in, and I quote, matters touching the benefit of his country, i.e. espionage work. Later on, in 1592, Cecil saved Marlowe again, this time from a charge of counterfeiting coin, which was a form of treason. The point of all this is, Marlowe had a guardian angel somewhere near the top of the food chain, and that guardian angel was probably the most powerful man in the country, William Cecil himself. Keep walking straight down Watergate Street. We're going to turn right in a minute. I think that William Cecil was involved in the faking of Marlowe's death. He knew Marlowe was in trouble with these accusations and there was no way they could be sidestepped this time. And Cecil still wanted to protect Marlowe because he'd been a very useful asset and could be so again. The crimes were so serious that the only way to stop Marlowe being prosecuted was for him to be officially dead and then stolen out of the country. At the corner, we're going to turn right down Prince Street, keeping the high wall of the dockyard immediately on our right-hand side. The Dog and Bell pub is over there on the left. We'll be coming back here soon. We're only going about 200 yards down the road. Plenty of circumstantial evidence backs up the escape theory. First of all, Eleanor Bull, who owned the guest house where Marlowe was supposedly murdered, was a relative of William Cecil. Also, remember Ingram Freiser, Marlowe's murderer? Well, it just so happens that he was also servant to Marlowe's friend and patron, Thomas Walsingham. Walsingham had connections with William Cecil, as well as all four of the men who were at Eleanor Bull's guesthouse that day. After Freiser had supposedly killed Marlowe and been released, Walsingham took Freiser back into his service and gave him gifts of land. Strange behaviour for a man who should have been angry at his servant for killing his friend. Unless, instead, the gifts of land came as a reward for helping to cover up Marlowe's escape. Soon a ramshackle gate will appear on your right-hand side. This is the entrance to Deptford's old dockyard. When you reach it, find a place where you can peer through the gate. It's possible the ramshackle gate has been replaced by something a bit more solid. There's lots of construction work going on round here at the moment. If so, just try to position yourself somewhere nearby, where you can see the old dockyard. So here it is, Deptford's old dockyard. It's an archaeologist's dream under that concrete. It was established by Henry VIII in 1513 to build ships for the Royal Navy, and really it's the main reason for Deptford's existence. A load of stuff happened here. Most notably, Sir Francis Drake was knighted here by Queen Elizabeth after he became the first Englishman to circumnavigate the globe. And it was here that the ships that defeated the Spanish Armada were made. But this place also carried on working as a dockyard for the Royal Navy right up until 1869. 
Take a look at your phone now to see an image of what it would have looked like here when it was still a working dockyard. This painting is from a couple of hundred years later than our story today, but the hustle and bustle and the vast number of vessels would have been the same. It's from this dockyard, on a warm spring evening, that Marlowe would have boarded a ship and fled to Europe. And if you're still thinking it all sounds a bit far-fetched, just imagine trying to disappear in Marlowe's day. There's no internet, no phones, no photographs. Very few people go abroad. If you want to go missing, it's actually fairly easy. And Marlowe, with his secret service and government connections, was well-placed to disappear. For all we know, he might have carried on working for William Cecil in exile. After all, there are no actual records of what Marlowe did as a spy. Now there's just one final piece of the puzzle. But I think you should be sitting down when you hear it. It's pretty controversial. So let's head over to our final stop, the Dog and Bell pub, and end our journey with a drink. Start heading back the way you came, back down Prince Street. The Dog and Bell pub up there on the right is an old-fashioned Deptford neighbourhood pub with a reputation as one of the best alehouses in London. It opened as a pub in the 1700s as a watering hole for workers from the nearby dockyard and it's been here ever since. It's an appropriate final stop because the recipe for ale actually came to England in Tudor times from Germany and was an immediate success with everyone from dockyard labourers to royalty. It soon became our national drink, and it has been ever since. Elizabeth I even had her own personal brewer, and maybe Marlowe stopped for a last pint of English ale before he went into exile. Wouldn't you? Well, now's your chance. When the road is clear, cross over, watching carefully for cars. After you've ordered your drink, I want you to tell the bar staff that you're doing the detour. They'll give you a book, a quill and some ink. Pause me now, go inside and restart me when you found yourself a seat and got comfortable. So, you should have the leather-bound Marlowe manuscript and a quill and ink. If you forgot to tell the bar person you're doing the detour, pause me, go to the bar and tell them now. Restart me when you're back in your seat. Open the book. Christopher Marlowe is on the second page, and then opposite him, on the third page, you can see William Shakespeare. The similarity between the two men is the final piece of the puzzle for me. So, at this point in the escape theory, Christopher Marlowe had just fled the country. But he was a committed writer. There's no way he would have stopped writing plays in exile. And he wouldn't be able to put them out as Christopher Marlowe anymore now, would he? Because Christopher Marlowe was supposed to be buried in a plague pit in Deptford. Remember earlier when I mentioned that in 2016 Marlowe was credited as co-author for the Henry VI trilogy, Shakespeare's first three plays? Well, what if William Shakespeare was, in fact, Christopher Marlowe? The novel I wrote is based around this theory. The historical evidence that Shakespeare, the man, wrote Shakespeare the collected works is actually quite slim. The name William Shakespeare didn't appear on any literary or theatrical document until two weeks after Marlowe's apparent death. Could it be that through his Secret Service connections, Marlowe arranged for this small-time actor and local businessman named William Shakespeare to front his plays for him? Well, whether Marlowe died or not, whether you buy the Marlowe wrote Shakespeare theory or not, there is one thing we can be sure of, and that's the magnitude of Marlowe's influence on English literature. It's fair to say that if Shakespeare did indeed write his own works, he directly copied many of Marlowe's innovations. Shakespeare then used these innovations to write the greatest body of work in the history of world literature. We're going to compare a few excerpts from Marlowe's and Shakespeare's writing in this book. Then we'll have a go at writing something ourselves. Elizabethan style, with a quill and ink. OK, turn the page and look at the quotes. 
The ones I've chosen here highlight some of the similarities between the two writers. Sometimes it goes right down to the wording. Take a look at this first one from Marlowe's play The Jew of Malta. But stay. What star shines yonder in the east? The lodestar of my life, if Abigail. The second is from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Pretty similar, no? But before you get carried away thinking Marlowe is Shakespeare, you should know that Elizabethan poets were well known for copying the lines they liked best from other writers' plays or poetry. Still, though, the similarities don't just end there. Pause me and take a look through the rest of the quotes on the other pages. Then restart me when you've had your fill of Marlowe and Shakespeare's mighty lines. Go ahead. Press pause. Back with me? Great. It has to be said that Shakespeare's best-known works, Hamlet and King Lear, are far more brilliant than even Marlowe's most accomplished play, Dr Faustus. And Shakespeare's early style, which was very similar to Marlowe's, changed substantially over the years. But that's exactly what you would expect of a great writer. Everything under the name Marlowe was written by a man in his twenties, whereas Hamlet and Lear were written when the writer, be it Shakespeare or Marlowe, had another ten years of writing practice and life experience. If Marlowe had lived to his late thirties, if the branch had been allowed to grow full straight, he too could have written Hamlet. But one thing's for sure, all of the words we've been reading were written with quill and ink. So let's give it a go ourselves. Turn the page in the book. It's a kind of visitor's book. You're going to use the quill and ink to write your name, where you are from, and your thoughts on the Marlowe murder mystery. Did Marlowe die in a simple brawl? Was he assassinated on the orders of Elizabeth I? Or did he fake his death with the help of his Secret Service connections and escape the country? Obviously, you know which theory I like best, but don't let me sway you. By the way, before you start writing, a quick note on the quill. You should have a couple of options. The first is a modern ballpoint pen in a turkey feather quill. Use this if you fancy taking things easy. It's still pretty authentic. The word pen is actually from the Latin for feather, penna. The second option is a traditional Elizabethan-style quill and some ink to dip it in. When you're writing, hold the quill the opposite way round to a fountain pen so you're using the outside of the nib to write, rather than the inside. To be honest, the best thing to do is to dip the nib of the quill in the ink and get writing. Don't worry if it's a bit of a mess, the book has plenty of pages. If you have a piece of paper of your own, you can practice on that. When you've finished writing, take the book to the bar and hand it back to them for safekeeping. But I wouldn't leave the pub if I were you. The beer is fine and they've got a bar billiards table in the corner. You can stay for hours, just like Marlowe or Eleanor Bulls. Hopefully your day won't end quite as dramatically as his, though. Thanks for joining me on our walk today. As the Elizabethans would say, fare thee well. <laughs>